That is Dr. Thomas J. Ord. Uh, he was my professor in college at Northwest Nazarene University, and uh, I fought with him tooth and nail all the time about his ideas and what, what he was doing. Um, he now works for uh, Claremont School of Theology. Uh, they just moved to Salem, and uh, he's going to join us for dinner and on February, I think, 16th. And so he's going to have a conversation with us about some of his ideas. He's the author of this book, God Can't, How to Believe in God and Love After Tragedy, Abuse, and Other Evils. And so for the next five weeks, we're going to go through some of the ideas that, that Ord uh, puts through this book. And, and I think it's going to offer us some help in understanding who God is and what do we do with the tragedies that we go through um, as, as we deal with some of these things. So, yeah, he's going to join us on February 16th. And so if I say anything up here that you don't like over the next couple of weeks, you can take it up with him. So that's a good thing. Um, well, let's just jump right into, uh, let's not beat around the bush. Let's, what are we going to say? We're going to say this, that God can't stop evil single-handedly. We'll get to the single-handedly part in a couple of weeks. But this is where we're going to start. God can't stop evil single-handedly. Ooh, I don't like how that makes me feel. <laughs> well, and what does that do for us? How does that make you feel? What, why does that idea bother us so much, the idea that God can't stop evil? It does bother me. It bothers me a lot when I think about God can't do something. I think it bothers us for a couple of different reasons. Um, if you are here today, and if you're like me, then maybe you've experienced some miraculous blessing that is absolutely unexplainable. Something that has happened in your life that you can't explain other than God must have done it. Maybe you've experienced some incredible blessing that you don't understand. Maybe it was a miraculous healing. Maybe it was a change in a relationship. I don't know what it is. But certainly, I'm in that camp with you, right? I've experienced something miraculous that I can't explain. One year ago, our daughter Clementine was rushed into emergency brain surgery. Many of you know this. We were told paralysis, vision loss, speech and language loss would be best case scenario, and here we are a year later feeling incredibly well, um, having none of those problems, beating all those odds, and of course we say thanks to God for all that. God has done something miraculous in our life. If you're here in church this morning, maybe you're in that camp. God has done something miraculous in your life, something beautiful, something that you can't explain. But I would venture to guess that for all of us that have had something beautiful, miraculous happen in our lives that we can't explain, there are 10 other people that have had something terrible, had something tragic, had something difficult happen in their life that they too can't explain. What force in this world has made this happen? Why would God allow for this suffering or tragedy to occur. I think a lot of those people probably aren't in church this morning because it's difficult to believe in an all-powerful being and letting things that 
aren't loving occur and exist in our world. And I would actually really probably say that most of us in this room have a little bit of both. Have a little bit of both. We've had some experiences, some blessings that we can't quite explain, but we've also had some sufferings that trouble us and mess with our minds and our hearts. And we've all asked those questions, why did God let this happen to me? And if you're here this morning, maybe there's still this spark of faith that says, even if I can't answer that question, I will still believe in God. Even if I can't understand all, those, um, all the reasons why this has happened to me, I'm still going to trust in God. Maybe that's where you are this morning. Maybe this morning you're saying, I don't trust anymore. I don't believe. But I saw this postcard. I saw this church was doing this thing. And maybe I'll give it another chance. Maybe for those reasons we feel really uncomfortable saying God can't do something. We've seen God do something. We'll talk about those in the next couple of weeks. But I would say another real issue, another real reason why we struggle with this idea that God can't do something is because our Western culture has given us this philosophical idea of God based not in Scripture, but based on Greek philosophy. That if there is a God, there must be a God who is all-knowing, can see everything, past, present, and future. There must be a God who is all-powerful, can absolutely do everything they possibly want. A God who is atemporal, a God who is outside time, sees everything all at once. A God who is all-loving, a God who is fully kind in every way, shape, and form. We call this the omni-God, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, omnitemporal, omnibenevolent. We call this God the omni-God, the superhero God that can do absolutely everything. This is the God that I believed in when I was a kid. My first impressions of God was that God was a superhero. My first impressions of God was that God was mighty and strong and can do absolutely anything. And that if God was blessing you, God was blessing you with muscles, right? This was my God, a God who was essentially one giant bicep who could do absolutely anything. I think we still tell our kids this. That this is who God is. God is the God who can do whatever God wants. And essentially, who God is, is pure will. God can will whatever God wants. There's some problems with that idea, though. There's some problems with that idea. A self-sufficient, unaffected, unmoved, omnipotent, perfect being is not God revealed in Scripture. This God who sees and knows absolutely everything then would necessarily not be emotionally affected by anything. This God is above all those things because he's not surprised. God can't get angry because God knows exactly what's going to happen. There's nothing that surprises God. Likewise, God can't really get happy about anything. Nothing excites God, nothing surprises God once again. This is the God who sets the world in motion and then steps back and says, all right, we'll see what happens. This is the God that I think a lot of us have this picture of, this God that can do absolutely anything that's far away. The problem is, that's not the God we get in Scripture. That's the God that we've tried to devise based on our logic, based on our rationality. And there's a lot of problems with some of those omni uh, characteristics, and we're going to talk about that at Pub Theology tomorrow night. 
But for today, I want to take a look at who is God in the scriptures. First, God, God is purely relationship in and of himself, right? Scripture rece- reveals that God is essentially relational. Even at the very beginning of the Bible, we, th- we think about God creating everything. What does God say when he makes creation, when he makes human beings? He says this really weird thing. Let us make them in our own image. Who is God talking to? God is always talking to someone or something. There is cooperation. When God creates the Garden of Eden, what does God do? He walks in the cool of the evening with Adam and Eve. He has a conversation with Adam and Eve. He starts with Adam, and he says, Adam, I can tell you're lonely. An omniscient God would have known that before God created Adam. And so God says to Adam, all right, let's, let's set you up. Let's find a partner for you. And God carts out all the animals in front of Adam. And Adam doesn't like any of them for a life partner. Go figure. Why is God surprised? Why did God do this at all? Why did God do that? If God's omniscient, why would that happen? So then God thinks to himself, okay, let's do something different. Let's make something new. And according to the story, God puts Adam to sleep, takes a bone from his ribs, creates the perfect partner, creates the woman. Adam wakes up, says, ah, God, you did it. This is my partner. This is who I will be with. That's not an omniscient God. That is a God who is thoroughly relational, a God who walks through time with Adam and Eve. The story keeps going on. Abraham, God, God sees the world as thoroughly evil, so God wants to do something about it, but God doesn't just snap his fingers and end all evil. Instead, God enters the world. He enters into relationship with the world. He finds Abraham. He says, Abraham, together we are going to do something beautiful. We're going to change the world. God works with Abraham. And there's this one conversation that blows my mind. God comes to Abraham and and says, Abraham, I got a problem with this city over here, Sodom and Gomorrah. Lots of evil stuff happening. Lots of terrible things happening. So, we're on our way over there to destroy it. Abraham goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. He has a nephew that lives in uh, Gomorrah. And he goes, well, hold on, God. I've heard that you're a God of love. So would you really destroy a whole city, even if there were 50 good, righteous people there? God stops and says, you know what? I wouldn't. Thank you, Abraham. Abraham freaks out a little bit and says, ooh, there might not be 50 good people in this city. (laughs) Would you do it for 40 people? Would you do it for 20 people? Would you do it for 10 people? And he whittles God down. Now, is God actually having a conversation with Abraham? Or is God just kind of playing and 
and, te- and teasing him this whole time? Or does God actually respect Abraham's desires? And does Abraham's desires and his will to talk with God, does it actually change and affect God? The scriptures lean to yes. God is affected by your actions. God takes delight when you do good. God is upset when we hurt one another. God gets surprised. God is fundamentally relational. This comes out to us as Christians when we, when we, uh, when we picture the Trinity. Oh my goodness, we've made this discovery that God has always been relational, that God is essentially re- relational. As Christians, we like to think that when God was creating the world, God was talking to the other members of the Trinity. God is relational. This is God's first and highest attribute based on Scripture. The New Testament decides to put it bluntly in 1 John uh, 4-7. It just says this, God is love. God is love. God is love. The scripture we read a little bit earlier that Elizabeth read had a really, really tasty idea in it. Had a really tasty idea that ended. It said that God can't be anything else than what God is. God can't be anything else than what God is. So then the question, of course, is what is God? Our culture, our society has answered that for us for too long and has told us that it is this omnipotent, omniscient, unaffected being who is far, far away. It's time for us to replace that idea of God with the idea that Scripture gives us. God essentially can't be anything else than what God is, and our Scriptures have revealed to us that God is love. This is who our God is. When we think about it, we, we accept this. We believe that this is how God works. God primarily works in this world through influence and love by wooing us to do good. When we think of medical miracles, we often think about the people that God has worked through. Love has called out to medical professionals emergency professionals, and has influenced them and inspired them to do their very best. Love works in this way through influence, through people. We, we primarily think that God works this way. When we pray for healing, we pray for the doctors. We pray that God speaks and works through our doctors. When I pray for peace, I'm praying for, that God would work and speak through our leaders and through our enemies. This is how we primarily believe God works, through power and influence. But we often hold back, kind of reserve God the right to just come in and take over, to take over our free will, to come in and do something that breaks the rules of nature. We kind of reserve God that right. When we reserve God that right, we are often disappointed when God doesn't. And we ask, God, certainly in this case and this scenario 
it would have been the most loving thing to take over this person's free will and stop them. Why didn't you do that? God, it seems that the most loving thing to do in this case and in this scenario is to break the powers of physics, break the laws of physics, come into our world, turn things upside down, and make things right. God, why didn't you do that? The solution that I'm offering here that I want you to think about is the idea that God can't do those things because God is love. 1 Corinthians 13, 5 says this, love does not insist on its own way. Put another way, love does not control. Love does not control. God cannot override your free will because that would be unloving. It would not be who God is. God is love. God can't step in and stop you from doing evil. Not single-handedly, not unilaterally, because God cannot control you, because God is love. I like what the scriptures say that love compels us. Love moves us. God speaks to us and inspires us. All these things are true. But what God can't do is to take away your free will. To do that, God would cease to be God. It is against God's very nature, according to Scripture. God can't be anything else than what God is. I present a difficult idea, a difficult thought. It's just where we're going to get started. I hope that you hang with me for the next several weeks as we deal with these questions, what God can and cannot do. If I say God can't override free will, God can't interrupt the laws of nature, I believe that. But remember earlier I said God can't do, can't stop evil single-handedly. I do believe God is at work. God is making things right in this world. And over the next several weeks, we'll talk about how God involves us in that work. But for, day, but for today, but for today, I want to stay on this idea that God can't stop evil because that would not be who God is, because God is love. Where's the good news in this? Where's the good news in this? The good news is in this, is that if you have ever experienced suffering in way, some way, shape, or form, if you've ever experienced evil or abuse in some way, shape, or form, I can tell you this beyond a shadow of a doubt. God did not do that to you. God did not allow you to, to suffer. <laughs> to uh, see suffering, to be able to change it, and to not would not be a loving thing. God did not do that. How do I know? I think about Jesus. I think about Jesus. I, I keep saying this. Jesus is our perfect view of God. It's the best we have. It's our most uh, full revelation of God. If Jesus was able to prevent an evil, absolutely he did it. 
when Jesus was presented with people who were suffering or sick, he did absolutely everything he could to fix it, to make it right. Jesus stopped every preventable evil that he could, that he came across. Whether it was somebody who was blind, whether it was somebody who had leprosy, whether it was a woman caught in adultery, used as a pawn in some scheme of men. Jesus never looked at any of these situations and said, you know what, I'm going to allow it. I'm going to see how this plays out, see if it benefits them. No. If Jesus could, he always got in the middle of it, and he always made things right. That's who our God is. So I don't buy that God allowed something to happen. If you've gone through some sort of suffering, God did not allow it to happen. God could not stop it because God is love. But where is God? God is with you in those sufferings. Your suffering is not some sort of judgment that God has, has it out for you, or that God was mean to you, or that you haven't been faithful to God. But God is with you in every circumstance, doing everything right. Suffering is not a sign that God, that, uh, God is displeased with you. God is with you in all things. God never stops loving. God never stops influencing. God never stops pushing for us to greater heights of love. God did not hurt you. That's where we're going to start with this. Next week, we're going to talk a little bit more about who Jesus is and how, what does Jesus reveal about the nature of God. And then, in two weeks, we're going to talk about miracles. Well, what happens when something unexplainable happens? I'll explain in two weeks. <laughs> what are the takeaways from this sermon today? The first thing is, I want us to try Try to let go of other notions about God. Notions about what God can and cannot do from other philosophies or ideas or logic. I promise you they're not logical. They have inconsistencies. They have lots of problems. I talk about this regularly that uh, Jesus is our starting point for everything we think about God. So rather than let your ideas about God influence the way you look at Jesus, I would say that you should allow Scripture and Jesus to be the center of your ideas of God. Allow Jesus to influence your understanding of God. Meditate on what the Scriptures say about God is love and what love can and cannot do. And understand that God did not cause you to suffer. Also, that was the second thing, is to rethink what love can and cannot do, if this is God's essential nature to love, then know that there are things that God can't do. God can't take away that free will. God won't or can't interrupt an evil person from doing something evil. Otherwise, God absolutely would. Absolutely would. Instead, God is at work in the world in other ways through influence and love. And then finally, be love to those who are suffering. <sighs> One of the reasons we struggle with the idea that God can't do some things is because for many of us, we've taken a lot of comfort in the idea that, ooh, even though I'm suffering, 
God must have some bigger plan at work. This suffering must not actually be suffering because it, it must be part of God's good plan. God wants me to do this for something good and great that I can't see down the road. That has brought some comfort to some people, but for many more people, it's only brought, it's only heaped ashes and coal onto pain because I can't see any good, any reason why God would want me to suffer this way. So I would suggest not to give those easy quips that, that God, is, God is doing this to you for some good that you can't see. Instead, let's be honest. Say, I don't even know. I don't know why. But I know who God is, and I know that God is the God who loves us. And Jesus' last words in the Gospel of Matthew is that I will always be with you till the end of the age. So I know this, that God is with us no matter what we go through. No matter what we go through. I hope that as we tease out some of these ideas that you stick it out that you work with me on these ideas, that you send me your angry emails, <laughs> and that we discuss these things together. Because this is iron sharpening iron. But one thing that I will say that I'm not going to give up on, let Jesus be the center of your understanding of God. Let Jesus, the tangible revelation of God, let this be your starting point for what God can and cannot do, what God is like, a God who absolutely would intervene in everything that he is able to intervene in. And to know that no matter what you are going through, God is with you, loving you, and working to bring about good things.